I get to talk to a lot of smart people on this podcast. Today, I also have someone who is very fun to talk to. I have with me Professor Silvio Micali. He is a giant in the world of computer science and has won a Turing Award for his work in cryptography. So buckle up and get ready for a freewheeling chat on research, research writing, reading, and everything that goes with it. I started by asking him how he reads research papers. Well, so, Varanya, let me try to clarify this for you, right? So, I don't read. Let me qualify it. Because I really am psychologically hooked to interaction. I really think, you know, I want to have a dialogue. But um, I don't know if I should um, explain everybody can understand that at some point I'm a little bit on the extreme uh, edge of if I don't have an interaction and I'm even sure there is an outside world there. So I'm very extreme. So that's the only way to, if reading seem, or writing seems to me unilateral actions in which you cannot have a, really a chance to dialogue. Okay. So when I read, I'm going to have um, the presumption given on the majority of people people write, but I'm not going to understand. That is my 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 first. So I read this, oh my God, so now another time comes and I'm not going to understand anything and uh, and that is a problem. But occasionally there are uh, things that actually are a pleasure to read. And those are the great surprises. And turns out, by the way, that those are the, thing, the writings in which a new science, in my case, is laid out. And when you want to introduce something fundamental broad for the first time, you have to have a dialogue. And the writer is imagining to having a dialogue. He has to convince the person. And by the way, let me give you an example. One uh, of the most important uh, such you know, piece of writing is the one of Galileo about uh, around the new science, how we call it, right? And so he had imagining you know, a debate between two people, even framing it in this um, platonic uh, dialogue. And so somebody was arguing and somebody was saying, and that is really great because at that point in time, he really wanted to convince people Yet, yes, there is math and numbers have been around for a long time, geometry, very precise proofs. But all of a sudden he wanted to say, hey, the law of nature obey mathematical rules. You know, it seems to us <laughs> normal now but just think, you know, when uh, people say that uh, nature was its own, uh, own creature, right? That uh, who knows uh, how nature was thinking and nature is impenetrable or something. They say, no, 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 no. Not only can be subject to rational analysis, but nature itself is rational. They follow when an object falls is quadratic rule that you can actually um, um, specify when this so and that was a really a phenomenal epochal change he had to write rhetorically as an interaction 
because he really realized he wasn't going to be there and that people are convinced by argument and he really set it up as an argument. So that is on one side in which dialogue was implicit. Another piece of writing that is a very close to my interest is um, Alan Turing describing what is a computation. Okay. Now, and he, he really is a monologue, so it's not a debate between two people, but the way he went about it to say, well, so understanding, you know, so computation is not poetry. What distinguishes them? So it may be that I am looking at uh, something and something in my head, and based on what is in my head and what is doing, when I write something else, uh, like if I'm doing an addition, then put myself in another mental state, you know, I'm now adding column, right? And so, and then I want to look, maybe doing the computation, something that I've looked before, that I've written before, and I can look up and things. And when he starts describing this, yes, it's a monologue, but it's a very rich monologue in which you really realize Veta is trying to lay the case that, by the way, also very humanistic because computation, he describes a human making computation and would say what a human made computation is computation. It's not human made and computation is separate. So, and so then he realizes that, well, if this is computation, he comes up and say this idealized notion, let's say, what do we have here? We have this notion of a Turing machine that has only one tape without a loss of generality because you don't lose anything. You have um, one head that uh, scans a symbol. You can write or and change a state and you go and move to another um, to another part of, of the tape. And he says, okay, wow, somebody's is doing? He's doing very detailed description about what computation is. Says it seems a lot of big and you know, long definition. What do I do with it? Now, turns out of it, what Venni does it is in a very simple way derives fundamental number theorems that they have at least some of them even independently before him described or later, but in very contrived way, you know, recursive function theories, you know, Gettle numbering, you know, heaven knows very complicated stuff that you know, somebody had to look at there and say, this is describing computation. And so, what it comes is that is the theorems in his case, because he set up the definition, he wrote so well, he understands, they follow like mature pairs. You, you just sit under the tree, pop, 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 all these details come down naturally, because he found the right way of looking at things. So what do you want to do when you want to do, when you want to write something new and fundamental, you have to always put the point of observation where on, 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 you have to look from the, the right angle, right like a Copernicus, so from the sun, not from the earth. Put yourself, put the reader where he wants to be, convince him that is the right place, and everything else should follow naturally, not by contrived and very surprised pieces of mathematics. Everything requires some sophistication at some point in time, but the fundamental theorem should come out, come out easy. And so that, in my opinion, is, um, 
is important is always think that you're having a dialogue. And if you don't have a dialogue, justify your moral, tell why the moral has to be, and then you can work only on the moral. But people have to absorb the moral is yours, right? And um, and uh, use you know, um, uh, human analogies, uh, use uh, you to, what you do in your daily life, uh, use whatever it is. And then the moral somehow it really, you really think, you, know, you understand the moral, you are able to think. And, um, and, and that is, uh, this humanizing um, big thoughts is very important. So I heard, no expert, I don't try, I don't have a big memory, but I heard that there are people to memorize all kinds of sequences, very complicated. And they think you know, about uh, going in the house, entering the house, and you say, I put this uh, world there, then I put this other world there. Because you make it something which is familiar to you, and then you want to exploit it, then you want to make it abstract. So I think writing has to say, come back to the really human part of it, the human experience it, try to have a dialogue if you can, or otherwise explain in very, very, very human terms the moral, and then the moral becomes so ingrained that you can reason only on the moral. Silvio, this is very interesting what you say about the dialogue part. And I've noticed when we've worked together that you take great care to think about whether the reader is going to understand it this way. Sometimes, or maybe all the time, the writer, you know, the dialogue with the reader is not how they come up with their idea. So there is a shift that's required at some point in the process. Is that how you see it as well? Yes, so there is, a, at some point in time, you are creating something autonomous, right, that has its own rules. And then, um, because we are always in a hurry, you want to automate everything that you can. But somehow, the success of your models are going to be proportional to the care and the length and the ease of explanation that you have done to introduce the moral. Because once the moral is captivating, everybody will follow it. If the moral is not captivating, somebody else, you're going to have, you know, a Babel Tower episode in which people speak a different language and they don't understand anything anymore. Because I want to say, I want to have the Silvio moral. The Varania is a variation of uh, Silvio moral and everything. Now it's Varania moral. Now there is going to be a lot of morals and, and people go. Why? Because people didn't take time to attract everybody in a moral in which everybody can be comfortable with. So you really have, if there is not, I claim that there is no such a big moral that has attracted everybody else, that, you know, that does, not, uh, does not have uh, this, uh, um, um, these explanations. When you see very influential papers and model that have been, they don't look like they're doing whatever I'm describing. That's only because their success is due to a very intense academic process and dialogue process in the classrooms, in courses, in things in which at some point in time you are convincing one by one a bunch of students who then become teacher and convince one by one by own students. And this is hidden from view. And then you can be confused. You see, there's a very dry piece of writing 
was successful. No, it was successful because there has been a generation or two of incredible um, explanations that go on the side, outside the paper. But if you ask me about the writing, and that is the primary mode of communication, and there is not classroom teaching or generations of classroom teaching, <laughs> the writing ought to be one way. And you'll be amazing, you know, and anything goes, right, in, um, uh, that is, uh, is convincing, you know. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I want to go back uh, um, to Galileo. He also had some very uh, thought experiments sometimes. Experiments that being an experiment, experimentalist himself, he never performed, but he was just imagining performing. And it was so clear. So even to describe the principle of inertia, right? Because anything we know that if I take an object and I throw it, sooner or less it stops. Because air stops, it's, ah, because there is the air, or because of the table, or all kinds of exclusive. But you want to say, if there is not these other forces applied to them, they would go forever at the same speed. Well, that's easy for you to say. <laughs> this is also thought. You have to convince people. And the way he goes about it, very a series of vignettes, once of the other, he says, you know, who has not been in a big, great ship, you know, when the wind is propels the sail and the ship goes faster than any fly can can fly, and yet you find flies who have no 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 difficulty catching up with the ship because they are pushed by the inertia of air around them, right? So so and now when all of a sudden, yeah, I've seen yes, <laughs> now that I think of it, I've seen the stuff, I've seen most of the stuff. So this stuff has an explanation. If we were writing in modern times, I want to say, have you ever seen um, 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 a, a steward or a hostess uh, in, a, in an airplane pouring coffee? It's going a thousand hours or an hour. Does it take, take the cup here and the teapot very far away so that by the time the, the thing? No, it puts one on top of the other as in on planet Earth because everything by inertia moves at the same time. But Galileo didn't have that inside. But I'm saying, if you want to explain in this in, in modern times, you'd use this analogy, right? So I think of it, you know, examples are actually great way to explain, and you must have not one, but many, particularly if you want to do something new. But the trick is to use any rhetorical trick on the book so that you don't get tired and say, oh my God, what's the point? We are already at example number four, right? So you, it, it must be short, captivating, moving, and sense that one example is different from the other. You don't want to, uh, to lose things. But, uh, but at the end, uh, um, 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 let's put it this way, Varanya, uh, science is a social enterprise. And rhetoric and the trick of communication is what keep society together. I mean, <laughs> so if you don't use those tools, you're not going to go very far. You'll do something, but not very far. If you want to go far here to... Um, to take this communication very, very clearly and, uh, and very seriously, rather. And, um, and um, somehow it cannot be uh, dry mathematical writing. Even if you want to derive some fundamental equations, and at the end of the equation said, the belief has to be justified somewhere else in writing 
by any way which I'm uh, described, and the otherwise is um, a lot of classroom uh, hours or um, uh, blackboard explanation or things like that that we don't we don't count because we don't see them. So I'm taking two things from this, Silvio. One is I'm taking a number of things, but two main things are coming to my mind. One is that you are saying that the whys are very important for readers to understand the justifications for why you make certain choices. And the other is that one may become better attuned to the needs of your eventual reader if once you have an idea, you are teaching it to others, telling it to people, you hear the questions they have. And so then if you were to sit down to write, you might be better prepared to write something that reads like a dialogue than if you're sitting by yourself in your room and you're just kind of writing it from your perspective alone and you don't know how others would respond as they receive that information. Yes, you're right. So that educates you and if you want to do. But remember one thing, that the timing is always important in year two. So by the more I teach, the more I become able to express what I want and also in writing. Okay. But the more I teach, the less important becomes writing. I'm a very much, you know, I love writing, but I, a few times when it's really done well. <laughs> Otherwise, I hate it. I'm very much, you know, fascinated by the oral tradition. So one has to be careful that if you keep on teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching, it becomes less and less and less relevant to write. So sometimes, you know, you it is important, paradoxically, that what I think is more important, Varanya, is that you have taught subject A and never written down. Then you taught subject B and you become better and better and better and better. Now, what you have to do is to take this experience that you have learned from A and from B, and when sometimes for C you want to write, you must write C, remembering what you have learned about A and B. But once you start teaching about C, at the end, you know, it becomes almost irrelevant because, you know, you start creating, you know, common knowledge about C and what the logic is, what is the inner thoughts. But when you write it for the first time and you have not thought about it, then you have to have experience in different subjects of, of teaching and figure out what are the difficulties that, you know, um, um, that uh, the, the poor reader uh, experiences, uh, preempt them, you know, um, try to, to see them um, in, uh, in front of you. And, um, and it's very laborious writing, right? Because in some sense, you know, it's, uh, first of all, it has to be a dialogue between you and yourself. So the more you schizophrenically split yourself in two, and one part of you Right, and the other part of you reads, the better it is. So, so somehow uh, take a piece with you and try to look at it from and reading, and then uh, the later you publish, the better it is in some sense. And I'm a very slow writer anyway, but I remember certain parts of uh, what I wrote about uh, what is encryption, what trying to define what you know the right encryption scheme ought to be. That paper I could not because I I, I changed it because I, I did I put it in the drawer for one week I put it take it out of the drawer and I say it was not good enough and I had to go back and write it again and 
rather than sending, I put it in the drawer. And when, when you look at a, at a fresh look, it doesn't look good anymore. And so when it becomes, you know, very, very diminishing returns, then that's the time to publish it. At least something that you really care about. Silvia, were there papers that were very easy for you to write, especially early in your career and others that were very hard? And do you know why one was easier and the other was harder? All the papers where they I care about were hard to write. And in a world in which you put a premium on number of papers, I have, in my mind, written a paper a year. More than this, I could not afford. But I have produced more papers than one in a year. And uh, somehow, the easier ones were where the model was not there. It was only a technical problem. And I had to go to justify nothing. I have only to derive uh, writing a proof. Still, it takes time to find, you know, the slick proof, write it elegantly well, but I need to justify why. Because uh, it was a question that uh, was open, either myself left open before or somebody else, and, uh, and you want to... And, and, uh, and, 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 and therefore... You can just go back to the basic definition, recall them, and then start proving stuff. That stuff has, uh, has been easy. But anything that, you know, there was something new or, oh boy, that was uh, a torture. And also, because why is it a torture? Because you, know, you really feel that, you know, I hate to be misunderstood. And somehow, don't ask me why, I feel that I always am misunderstood. <laughs> so, therefore, I have this uh, nightmare that what I write is not going to be understood. And, uh, and so, therefore, I, I prevent things like this. But when instead I emotionally care less about it, that is more of a technical problem, that is easier to write. And what is technical? Something which the model is clear. The definitions should not be justified. You just uh, you just keep on going. By the way, we I think we'll be better off in creating a, a more creative society if somehow we teach uh, historically some of the subject, which takes a bit longer. But I think you enable everybody who follows the subject to be able to be more prepared when they write a new chapter, right? So what there are things. Historically? Let me tell you, there is a. Uh, this, you know, there are very elementary and, and therefore familiarity brings contempt <laughs> on. Uh, notions, like the notion of a continuous function, right? Which is the famous epsilon delta definition. Have you ever heard about it? Is um, somehow say a function is continuous uh, if uh, for any x, 
Uh, and for any epsilon, there is a delta such that when uh, x prime is less than delta from x, then f of x is, uh, is uh, f of x prime is epsilon away from f of x. If I didn't get confused, <laughs> mixed epsilon and delta. That should be the definition. And, and I swear this definition, I've seen it, because given directly like this. But what do they want to do? They want to say is that, you know, you want to have a graphic, there is an X, you, you draw f of X in a graphic, right? And you want to say that the graphic of the function can be written on the blackboard without erasing the chalk from, from the board. That's what you want to capture. But you want to capture mathematically, and yet to think about it, that that really does capture it. And so usually people bypass this aspect completely. Because in my opinion, when you do teaching historically, you have to say, I want to capture, look at this function, one dot here, one dot there, separate dots, right, scattered all over the place. Look at this other function that has a nice waveform, say, whatever it is. And you can say, there is a difference. So, to say that, um, you know, goes, how can I capture that this graphic of this function can be written on the board? Because that's what to be continuous. And then you must elicit ideas. You must struggle with capturing it. And after you struggle enough, maybe eventually you have to keep on going. And so if people don't get it, then you have to, to give the epsilon delta definition. But I think, but if you take time to introduce it, to motivate it, and particularly to kick around the tires, to elicit ideas, then whoever is in that class, whoever is a much more capable, when his or her time comes to, to figure out something that does not have a definition yet, and somehow to argue how it should be defined. Instead, for being a very, very fast, at most people say, that's the definition, let's keep on going, or say, this is the definition, example, this function is continuum. Another example, this function is not continuum because of epsilon delta is violated here, but it's not the same as trying to think about defining something. And, uh, and so somehow, so usually the historical perspective is that is, means that the people struggle to go from A to B, and no matter how natural seems later, you had to go back in time to say why this was a big deal. And, and so in some sense, and I think there is something to be gained. It cannot only be the only thing we gain. It cannot only be because we don't progress fast enough and we are obsessed with speed, right, all of us. But I, I think that at least, you know, one course that somehow puts the, the reader in the, in the historical context in which these ideas were done. And that is, you know, is a nice complementary course. <laughs> I want to sound too. But I think people will enjoy it, but they will come out better and appreciating, you know, at least the, the difficulty of conceptualizing something new, the, dif the difficulty of uh, convincing people of something new, or the, the fact that a certain technical model really captures a given reality and particularly and, and, and to be able to capture it yourself I think it makes you a, 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 a better thinker not, not all of it but 
there ought to be some component which is actually is completely neglected. And uh, there are actually historians of science, they never intersect in the classroom. And when they are science are a very broad you know, philosophical uh, framework, not a particular definition, not a particular model, not a particular. So something like this, I, I, I would welcome. I, I find it fascinating. That's a very good idea. In fact, as you were saying that, Silvia, I was also thinking that what you were saying could be applied even within the span of a research paper where you lay out the problem or the research question for the reader and invite them to think about how they might solve it and then explain to yes. them here is... Oh, absolutely. And in fact, because of a reader is at some point, you know, so how, how do you solve it? Question mark in italics. That works. And says, well, so one idea could be to do this. However, blah, 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 blah. So can this be better? Blah, blah. So you need to have something like this if the subject matter is new and if you want to push a new model. If it is a purely technical stuff, you may need much less, but you still have somehow to justify, if you want to enable others to improve, is to say, uh, say I solve this, this is a technical problem, everybody agrees that's important because it's a previous paper which defines why it's important. <laughs> But I'm to say is that, you know, why it was not done? So I say, um, originally I thought about doing this, then I got to the idea. It's some a little bit explanation about it, even your line of thinking would be very appreciated. But, but you know, not everybody agrees with that. It's much more efficient to write short paper. You can publish more short papers in one uh, booklet, right? If it is a journal, mathematical journal. So you value being concise. And other people say they make it actually a, a point of honor to hide all the, the tracks of the, of the, you know, of the waving journey that brought us here. They erase the tracks and they just present us the solution. As is, this is desirable. So I, I you know, I feel I think, that not to indulge exaggerately, but to have something, even in a purely technical paper, how did he come up with the idea? Just a very short kind of quick. Uh, yeah, quick you should have it. at least uh, something, you know, it's a better paper and it's uh, easier for me to read if they give me a sense that they tried something else and failed. And, and ultimately there was some haha moment which drove you towards them. Yes. And so, Silvio, you did not grow up speaking or writing in English, and then you had to do it. So for all of the people who are coming from other linguistic backgrounds, will you say, like, is the ability to speak English the fundamental thing you need to write papers in English? Or are there other things that you need? And, yeah. So, <laughs> actually, Varanya, I always think that uh, limitations are, uh, can be turned into advantages. So obviously writing uh, well, well in the sense of the construction of a sentence and uh, the introduction of the concept, the timing of it is, um, very important and to have uh, choppy sentences, non sequiturs, 
you know, the subject changes middle sentence, something of a singular becomes a plural, and um, all the stuff, you know, a list in which the first list item is an adverb, then it's a word, then it's a verb. Anyway, yeah, you feel assaulted to an assault of the senses. So, and therefore it's distracting. And, but in some sense, you know, I don't want to discourage, you know, this because uh, somehow when you come from another linguistic experience, language exists and they're different because each one of them is good at something. Maybe some, some people will want to describe a very extremely precise certain type of psychological emotions. Who knows what, have more words about it, more rules or, or um, certain others have a more um, freedom in which you describe them. So they, they capture, if they exist and they are still spoken today, they must be good at something. So if you figure out what your particular language is good at, maybe you can structure the whole paper using this that is more familiar to you. The, the language can be English, but you know, but the structure of a sentence can actually be informed by another language. Because I, I think it's, it's, it's totally okay. It's like if you have a, take a soccer team and all of a sudden you, you buy a, a champion from somebody else, you want to construct your team around that champion. And the rest is, so, so I think it's, uh, it's important. So if you, once you figure out what your language is very good at, and you realize that maybe you, you'll be able to import if you are, are uh, and, uh, and reconstructed in English and go about, about whatever other people are, are, are missing. And by, by doing so, at the end, you enrich even the English language uh, itself, right? So is, uh, but you know, coming from Italy and, uh, long sentences, right, with, uh, that were very, uh, it's a bit more traditional, there is a quintessential Italian novel, one perhaps that uh, made Italian uh, post-Dante in one way. The first half of a page is a single, <laughs> finally the point is at the end. So when I started writing like this in English, I didn't go very far. Right, I mean, short sentences, uh, punctuation right away. But certain other aspects, I, I think that, you know, yeah, there was, a, there is Italian behind my English, hopefully not the grammar <laughs> mistakes, but uh, the structure of some things. Because when you want to ask, express something personal, you really tend to think in your native language, and then you must figure out why this come up better and how can you actually express it, what is missing, and uh, and you end up being creative, at least in the structure of a sentence, if not in the grammar, right? But, uh... Yes, but beyond the sentence, even, I remember, Silvio, you were saying once when we were working together that as a reader, you don't like it when there are very large chunks of text. You want smaller paragraphs. And that you said, if I remember right, it's because, you know, it's one thought is expressed and you can take that in and then you want the next thought. And so I guess, you know, even beyond the level of the sentence, it's how you partition information into small or huge buckets. That aspect I'm getting at, do you, that seems to be maybe even separate from language, perhaps it's how you think about things and how much information you put into each 
packet, say a paragraph sized packet? Yes, I, I agree. I mean, timing is everything and, uh, and uh, you must have um, a chain reaction because at the end, uh, understanding this critical mass in which you suddenly say, oh, I understood, <laughs> whatever it is. And so you must get there and ignite by a proper timing what you want to do. And uh, the ultimate uh, meaning may come uh, later. And, and, and uh, yeah, you want to put one foot in front of the other, but there are no rules here, right? So I want to say is that, you know, the only rule that is important is, you know, somehow, how you introduce concept one at a time or many at a time and you keep two balls in the air. Uh, I mean, is is very hard, but ultimately what you want to do is to evoke in the reader, particularly in scientific writing, you want to evoke the illumination that everybody experienced or has done a research and says, you know, now I, I get it, what, what is it going to about? And so you want to recreate that because that is, uh, is this actually very aesthetic moment in which you, something becomes, you know, elegant, clear, right? Is a really, and, and, and that's what you want, what, what you want to do. But somehow I'm, very much, you know, in favor of generally speaking, of having a shorter sentence and somehow uh, paragraphs with a name that you know where you don't get lost in, in the forest to say, right? But at the same time, if you guide them from here to there to there, it's a kind of indoctrination. You really need to have a, a little bit, you know, the surprise um, a moment if you su succeed in doing it, you know. But otherwise, if you don't succeed in doing it, having things which are very strongly knowing where you are. You may, so I use um, perhaps a little bit more uh, uh, subsection sub without even numbering, you know, just something which is a paragraph with a. Um, what is clear is a title for the paragraph, just to let you know where we are. So if you look, just look at the type of the paragraphs, you can actually have a, a sense. And, you know, but, but you know, but you evolve into in, in, in this too. And so as, somehow I remember that uh, in my first paper, I wanted to emphasize that the things that were making them bold that was more bold than ordinary writing <laughs> defeats the purpose altogether. So somehow I'm becoming a little bit more, how uh, I'm putting the exclamation marks all the time to make a, a point. Um, so, so I think that, you know, it's important that there are different styles. I don't want to, advocate other people should use mine and that would be problematic in fact, right? So you want to have a portfolio of styles so that you make sure that at least one style that works uh, is, is around and they may work better in one case than in another case. But say, yes, but 
but certain things like you know biographical anthropomorphizing you know the power is very important in my opinion the somehow the, the example are important not example of something already claimed but to put an example of something hard to understand to say is how about that you lead with that and something very uh, surprising or counterintuitive or something that that you really want to explain later and maybe the paper is about to do that but somehow the examples are more important than the theory that uh Somehow the word example is that the way I interpret it is something which is primitive, is the experience. Something, you do something like this, uh, 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 and uh, not uh, like I'm giving you a theory and then is an example. I don't mean that. I want to say the, the special case, the, the thing that you encounter that you, know, you find surprising. You have to lead with that, and the rest is uh, try to um, uh, explain. So to me, if you make it a little bit, you know, um, uh, historical, recreating the genesis, what was it that you found surprising, what are you trying to express, acknowledging that is a problem to express it. Because if you don't acknowledge it, people are, are going to say, well, I don't believe you. Right? So, um, uh, so you must say, uh, you can do A, you can B, you can C, and finally I'm settling on this, and this is why. So to me, having a dialogue, realizing that the reader is uh, need to be convinced and uh, having the history of the idea of the technique uh, or even the initial surprising fact or anecdote or mathematical thing that is is good and for and for the rest you know the beauty about reading is that <laughs> there is a point in which all rules are off and uh, you have to <laughs> Find some some uh, an ad hoc solution, right? You have to find your own way. Yes, you have to find your own way. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Silvio. Um, I yes, it's we've had a chance to write together, and what I can share from that is that uh, I think sometimes a lot of my students feel like I wrote it once, I revised it once, it's enough. But I have oh. noticed. <laughs> but writing is a curse so beware writing beware is is in, 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 in ever ends so well uh, at some point it has to end otherwise it's going to be obsolete by the time you, you publish it but uh, uh but but is a is a but um, but you go over it many many times, many, which many I times. think is yes. why it gets better and better, especially yes. when you're writing now for a much wider audience. Uh, yes, it becomes very important. Yes, and it's also very important when you, you want to capture the widest audience possible, particularly with introduction of the thing, and you must have a, a sense in which you know you say now I'm going to lose some of you. But at least, you know, you are, if necessary, but always never write for the specialist. I mean, uh, so you must have always um, at least um, 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 as far as you can go to being inclusive is, is, is better, even in a piece of technical writing. Then at That's some point, okay. you, yeah. Yeah, at some point you lose your yeah. generalist readers, but you carry them as far as you can take them. Great. Thank you, yes. Silvio. This is already very helpful to hear. 
from okay. you in particular. <laughs> hope, I, hope it helped. <laughs> Very much so. Hey, um, great to see you. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And I hope you got some interesting ideas, inspiration, things you can take to your work today. Thanks for listening.